0: Hey, let's do this this morning to get started. Let me invite you to stand and I want to read for us Psalm 50 and this fits with the message and it's a little bit lengthy and so I wanted to read it now so we would have it in our mind and this is entitled God himself is judge a Psalm of Asaph the mighty one God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who make a vow with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you, I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goat from your fold, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the hills, All that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, so that was to Israel. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, you cast my word behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have kept silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God." To the wicked, he said, these things you have done, I have been silent. You thought that I was like you. And the way Josh puts it is God is not just a better version of us. He is absolutely otherly. And this morning we're going to look at uh, God and who he is and his righteousness. And he's declared himself the judge. Pretty sobering. Um, So let's pray together. Father, we bow before you. We come together. Uh, because we want to worship your name and consider who you are. We ask that you teach us. We ask that you give us hearts and minds to hear you. May your word be proclaimed in absolute truth according to who you are and who you have said. And we ask that you would meet among us. Father, work within our hearts a holy fear of the Lord that we might submit to you and be thankful for who you are And what you do in our own lives individually as well as among us as well. May your will be done this very hour. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I had uh, half a dozen, seven or eight questions come my way last week after we studied Genesis chapter 7. Which is understandable because Genesis chapter 7 is tough. That's the chapter where we see God's judgment as well as his mercy. We see him blot out everything that had life that walked on the earth. Um, because of evil and wickedness always only being the intent of man's heart. And we also see his mercy uh, being extended to Noah and by, uh, by uh, extension to Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives as well, uh, everything that was on the ark. And I had some questions and I think, and I prayed about this, And uh, I think addressing a couple of those questions, specifically one of them, could potentially benefit all of us in our understanding of who God is. And I realize that that's a weighty topic uh, as much as we're able to understand about who he is because we have our finite human minds and some of uh, us have chosen, or we are always in the process of needing to grow, and so we understand as much as we can, as much with as much as uh, we understand of what He's given us. Ultimately, that allows us to better know Him, and as we better know Him, I think we gain a greater uh, fear of, and appreciation, and awe-filledness um, with the Lord, and so we serve Him better. And so that's what I want us to do today as uh, so i want us to tackle that but we're going to be in several different places and i'm going to start in philippians chapter 3 with a phrase a very small phrase paul is speaks of the surpassing worth of knowing christ jesus my lord in philippians chapter 3 verse 8 and then he says for this for his sake jesus i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that i may gain christ and then he says this that i may know He doesn't stop there, but that's what I want to emphasize, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, being like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He places a very high bar on that I may know Him. It isn't that I may know who I want Him to be or that I may know who I'm comfortable with Him being. It's that I may know Him for who He has expressed Himself to be. And so we can see that that's a journey uh, because I grow and, and then I plateau and then something happens and I'm studying God's Word and I read a little more and I understand a little bit more and I know Him a little bit better and that's a continual journey. That's the norm. If it's not a continual journey, you're not within the norm. Um, It's supposed to be a continual journey. It seems like, it seems like, as we know Him, for who He has revealed Himself to be, and to the level of understanding and maturity that we have individually reached, always striving to grow, like Paul expressed that he also wanted to grow. As I know Him, it seems that, it positions me to be a better, better equipped to worship God and sing God is good. And the th- songs that we just sang, uh, because I know him, and my heart goes out to wanting to acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done and what he has saved me from if we're in a situation like Noah. Um, and we're able to do that in spirit and in truth. And if I have a perverted, and I know that sounds intensely negative, but if I have a skewed understanding of who God is, am I worshiping Him in spirit and in truth? And so there's a high bar placed on that I may know Him. So let's see if we can grow in our understanding of who God is in light of some of the things that happened in Genesis chapter 7. And this I will confess to you already we're not going to understand some things. And so how can that be good and be considered growth in understanding who he is when I walk away without an understanding? I think that is growth because it helps us recognize how otherly God is, how awesome he is, that he's not just a better version of me, not just a better version of you. Not only was death present and extremely widespread, we also saw God extend his favor. We might have preferred that it would have been extended to more people than just Noah and his clan. But that's all that got it. Eight people total, Peter tells us, as does Genesis. But we read that God gets to have mercy upon whom he will have mercy And I find after having helped with um, many, many funerals, and I don't know how many, 125, 150, 200, I don't know. Uh, I don't want to count that and think about all the funerals I've done. However, I do have a file on my phone of funeral songs, and we were vacationing in Georgia one day, and I said, hey, Kath, you want to hear my funeral songs? (laughs) Anyway, anyway, I find that after having a little... Let's have something light here. I find that after having helped with many, many funerals, there can be, though not always, there can be a questioning of God and his activities. God, why did you take this person from me? You can heal. I know that you're capable of doing that. Why did you allow them to die an untimely death? Why did you allow them to die without me having an absolute confidence that they're in the Lord? And so I can question some of the things that I know about my Lord. I don't know that it has to be improper. It probably depends on how we do it. I think what we'll discover or be reminded of this morning will even help in those and frankly other undesirable situations and circumstances that we come across. A quick recap, Genesis 4. Four, chapter seven, rather, verse four, God says to Noah, "For in seven days I will send rain on the earth. Forty days, forty nights. Every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground." Verse twenty-one: All and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures. "...that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life." Verse 23, "...only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark." A question that I was asked last week was, does that mean that everybody on the earth that died in the flood, which would mean all of mankind, save Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives, were they all condemned eternally also?" Were they all hell-bound? Everything, every person that walked on the earth. Valid question. Does everyone dying because of the flood mean they were all lost, eternally judged, and hell-bound? We talked a little bit about it, and our conclusion was that the text of Noah's story, Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9, didn't say. Adam, I have an opinion, and I'm going to give it in a bit. Adam's son Seth had produced a godly line. Were they all evil by this time also? Everything died. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians, and I'd like for you to open your Bibles there, because I want to read us something that is just so critical. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul was addressing divisions in the Corinthian church Some were saying, and you know the story, that we're of Paul. Others were saying, we're of Apollos. Paul wanted them to see that if they're believers, they are of Christ. And that they, Paul and Apollos, were Christ's servants. He and Apollos were tasked with being good stewards. And then he says something that I find extremely important for them, for us, and for everyone who names the name of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 6 says, I have applied all these things that he spoke of. To myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And I I, I just, I wanna uh, remind us that it is so easy for us in our logical mind to say, if this, and this, and this, then this. And we, and we treat this as though it were written from God. And we have to really be careful. And Paul said to the Corinthian believers, you be careful, I want you to know you shouldn't go beyond what is written. Isn't that what the Pharisees did? God had given his law. And maybe, maybe, even with a good motive, maybe not, probably dependent on the individual, they had created their own laws to protect them from violating his law. So they had gone beyond what was written for the purpose of not violating his law. Do you see how easy it can be? I think we can fall into that as well. Not going beyond what is written is a challenge. It can be difficult even with a good motive, with a heart's desire to be pleasing to the Lord. And in what I personally believe, I can go beyond what's written, which causes me to do and to live the the way that I do and 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 the way that I live. When logic is used in different theologies that are organized, extreme care must be taken that I don't go beyond what is written or especially when I go beyond what is written with my conclusion and it violates something from Scripture. That is, so, that is so dangerous. And Paul wanted to warn the Corinthians of that. Creating an unwritten law for why you do what you do is easy. If you're as old as me or a little older, you'll remember in churches when they didn't have mixed bathing. Mixed bathing is another way of saying swimming. It isn't that you're taking a bath together naked. It's that you have swimming clothes on and you're in the pond swimming. And the law became of not having mixed bathing became as equal to God's word. Going beyond what is written. Yeah, but what about? I understand. I get it. But we have to be careful that we don't go beyond what is written. Let's be honest. Many find it more comfortable when we can find our own laws and follow them. Because now I dress like everyone else. I speak like everyone else. I use the same language that everyone else uses. I don't do mixed bathing like real people that honor God don't do mixed bathing also. And we could do dancing, and we could do you fill in the blank. We could do all kinds of stuff. So what about the pre-flood? Let's get back to Genesis. What about the pre-flood, antediluvian people who populated the earth? Really, they'd been around for quite a while by the time Genesis 7 comes comes around. Ten generations from Adam. They've lived a long time, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,700 years or so. What do we know that's written? Chapter 6, verse 5, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Chapter 6, verse 8, but Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's not said of anyone else, just Noah, not even of his wife or his sons or his son's wives. The end of all flesh, chapter 6, verse 13, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Verse 17, everything that's on the earth shall die. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant, my promise, my word with you, and you shall go into the ark, Your son, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. The whole Nephilim situation of chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 added to man's wickedness But they were already sin-filled already. They were all sinful. That happened in the garden. Everyone that was born after that had a sin nature. And it was beginning to express itself uh, 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 aggressively. The garden showed us that. The following generations did as well. The law hadn't been given yet. Moses wasn't on the picture. So, we don't have the Ten Commandments. So, they hadn't violated God's commandments. They hadn't violated have no other gods before me. They hadn't violated honor the Sabbath or honor your mother father or don't steal or don't commit they hadn't violated those things yet because it hadn't been given yet God's commentary about everyone that walked the earth save Noah and those who went with Noah who found favor in his eyes his commentary about them was that they were wicked and the intent of the heart was always evil only continually all right Romans 2 seems to fit here if you want to read it Romans 2 verse 12 says this For as many as have sinned without the law, that would be these people, that would be Gentiles also. For as many as had sinned without the law will also perish without the law, thou shalt surely die in the day that you eat thereof. And as many as had sinned in the law will be judged by the law, for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature or naturally or through personal conviction do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. They create their own law who show the work of the law written in their hearts. So God wrote his law in the hearts of these antediluvian people, everyone before Noah. And we find that over in Hebrews also. We find it in a psalm, but we find it also in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where it speaks of God writing eternity in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves their thoughts either accusing or else excusing them in the day that God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So they didn't have Moses' law, and yet in some God way, he had written into their hearts his law, and whenever they violated something that they knew that they shouldn't do, they knew that they shouldn't do it. And you know exactly what that is. We do the same thing. We have a conscience, and I think ours is even spirit energized. We have the spirit of God that energizes our conscience. And when we are going to cross a line that we know we shouldn't, it's very subtle. But our conscience tells us, don't do that. And I hope you submit. And sometimes I do. And frankly, sometimes I go like this. I'm just going to be honest before you because I think you do the same thing. And our conscience pricks our hearts. That's the spirit of God. In scripture, God has used relational words to describe our relationship with him. He used words or phrases like heavenly father, a father. He used the phrase a child of God. He, Jesus called his disciples friends, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. My pers- my purest understanding of him is aids me in my relationship with him if I choose not to accept something that he says about himself or something that, he's, that he does, I have a marred, skewed understanding of who he is. And I don't think I can worship him as well as I could in my purest understanding of who he is. Genesis 7, how could God do what he did during the flood? Why would God do what he did? Actually, we have a pretty good answer for that. Will he judge so severely ever again? Did he really do what it says in Genesis 7? Something came to my mind as we were, I hope I can find it, as we were singing, and this is God to Moses on the Mount while the people are making a golden calf. Therefore, let me alone that my, well, let me back up. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Just like he did of Noah. Noah. Children of Israel are down there while Noah's getting the commandments, they're making their golden calf, they're holding them up and saying, these are your gods. And God said, Moses, get out of the way, I'm going to consume them, I'll make a great nation, I can do it from just you. And we know the story that Moses interceded on their behalf, and he didn't, um, but they also continued to have difficulty. um, But did he really do what he said? Might he do it again? Will he judge the earth on the day of the Lord? Absolutely he will. And it's good to understand that even though we might not understand it completely, it helps us have a holy fear of God. And we ought to have that. There is a hell. He does. He is a consuming fire. We, the consuming fire goes before him. We read in Psalm, Psalm 50 this morning. Jesus said that Noah and the ark and that situation with God destroying everything that walked was real. Matthew 22, when speaking about his second coming, he said, But of that day and hour, no one knows, Matthew 24, rather, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days of before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. The day of the Lord isn't a 24-hour day, it's an event, still future. The day of the Lord is a, I, don't, I hesitate to use the word horrible day, Because he's righteous and holy, but it's it's tough. It's tough. If Jesus's word isn't good, let's go home. Let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. But his word is good, and we know that, and that's why we're here. That's why you're here. I hope. And we know that Genesis chapter six through nine is truth as well. The one who spoke these words um, raised himself from the dead, like he said he would. His word is good. Are there any, and this is what I want to do this morning, are there any other biblical truths that can help me understand God in his Genesis 7 activity? And I think there are, and I want to talk about three, and there's probably more. I want us to talk about who was, who. was what was the population of the earth at that particular time. I want us to consider God's holiness, and then I want us to look at an illustration that he gave to Jeremiah for Israel of the potter and the clay. I got to thinking about the genealogies in chapter 5 and wondering were any of the people of Seth's line still around, all right? Lamech, who was Noah's father, the last in line before Noah, had had Noah when he was 182 years old. He lived 595 years after Noah, it says in chapter 5, verse 30. We remember that Noah had three sons when he was 500 years old, chapter 5, verse 32, and the flood didn't come until the 600th year of his life, chapter 7, verse 6. So his dad, Lamech, 595 years after Noah was born, was five years dead before the flood came. Lamech wasn't around, all right? So I thought about Methuselah. Methuselah was the one who lived longer than anybody else, and that would be Lamech's father. Um, And and Lamech's uh, father and Noah's grandfather, doing the math of how old he was when he died, how old he was when he had Lamech, Methuselah would have died right around, get this one, Noah's 600th year. And so I got to thinking, might he have been annihilated in the flood i don't think he was and there's a reason tell you what it is Um, but he would have died right around noah's 600th year which is the year the flood came it appears that he would have died just prior to the flood because the genealogy in chapter 5 verse 26 says and he died it doesn't say and he drowned it says and he died Okay? And so it appears that Methuselah wasn't there. Enoch was his father. Well, he walked with God and he was not. And that takes us back as far as we can go in the, in the godly line of Seth. However, Noah would have or could have had brothers and sisters, depending upon when they were born, if they would have lived 600 years, um, the 600th year when the flood came. Because in chapter 5, verse 30, it says, and he begot Noah, that was Lamech, Lamech lived 500 years, 95 years, and he had sons and daughters. So he would have had other sons and daughters. So it's very possible that Noah had brothers and sisters who would have been alive when the flood came. All that to say he would have known some people um, that were going to be annihilated who God said as his commentary always only evil continually is the thoughts of their hearts so back to the original question did everyone who died in the flood experience eternal judgment it's impossible to say for sure but it sure seems that way in the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die Noah was the only one declared to find favor in the eyes of the Lord, and by extension, his wife and their three sons and their wives as well. And sin and wickedness brought death to the rest. It had even spread to the animal world. Something that I find helpful, though it doesn't answer all of my questions, is God in his amazing, awesome, fearful holiness. God's holiness. One source says, His unparalleled majesty. He isn't just a better you, He's God. His unparalleled majesty, his, incompar- his incomparable being, His blamelessness, His faultlessness, Unblemished moral purity, His otherliness, the one who speaks and it happens. He's not just a better me. We have some things in common with our Lord because he made us in his image. But we have to be careful that we don't just view him as a moral Jerry, as a Jerry who always makes the right decisions. You fill in your name. To the wicked, Psalm 50 says, These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself. No, he's not. He's creator God. He isn't just creator God better than Jerry. He's creator God awesome in everything that he is and all that he does. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, And you know, don't you? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. That was the response of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So when I go back to Genesis 7 and I think, God, how could you do this? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Moses, I'm tired of them, they're stiff-necked, just get out of the way, and I will create a nation from you. And in the day of the Lord, depending upon what you have done with Jesus Christ, there is a day of judgment as well. And there is a hell, and it is reality, and it is good to not understand that because it gives us this awesome, holy fear of God, and we need that. Woe is me, Isaiah said, for I'm lost. This is Isaiah. Isaiah. Isaiah said this. Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My word, where do we dwell? Another biblical truth that I think is good to remember that I find helpful when we find, uh, we find first in Jeremiah and later in Romans. And that is the potter and the clay. Open your Bible to Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18. And I brought this morning two pieces of pottery. And this one's pretty cool. Um, I bought this piece of pottery in Spain. My daughter, Kristen, was studying over there, and we had taken a road trip, and I wanted a souvenir, and I thought, could I get this thing back to the States without it breaking? And so I bought it, and I did. And as much as I can calculate, this piece of proddery she studied for a semester there only cost me ten or twelve thousand dollars. <laughs> Maybe more. <laughs> and then there's this one, and Kathy and I were driving on a beach road in Brazil. And similar to Spain, which was just a pottery gathering on the side of a highway, we were on the side of a a road, and I pulled over and bought this. And the intricacy of this piece is really pretty interesting. Whoever made this um, knew what they were doing. They were an artist. I'm not saying the person who made this wasn't an artist, but the details of this are far beyond the details of this. This one cost me about four bucks, okay? I protect this one a lot. (laughs) Let's, for illustrations purposes, pretend that the same person made these two vessels. Why did he make this one like this with its beauty and this one simplistically? And in its simplicity, it's pretty cool also. But why did he do that? Because he's the potter. He made this one the way he wanted to, showing his skill, and he made this one for common use. We're in Jeremiah 18, and this is what it says. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down, To the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my word. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hands of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to make. So he was making something. Either the clay was weak, or he touched it with his finger, and he created something that he didn't want. And so he just reformed that thing, put it back on the potter's wheel, and he made another vessel to the potter. And it seemed good to the potter to make. Then, verse 5, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? Says the Lord, look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak, this is amazing. The instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, or to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent, that same word from Genesis chapter 6, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it, And the instant I speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom to build it up and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I have said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. Similar to Genesis chapter 7. Similar to the day of the Lord, a future day of judgment. A plan devised by God, creator God, the potter who is able to make something eloquent or something common. He is, he is, he is warning them, I have fashioned a disaster and devising a plan against you, but look at the call to repentance. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your way and your doings good. And he says to Judah, as it were, if you repent, then I won't, and if you don't, then I will. And he gives them an opportunity. Just like the antediluvian age of Noah. And just like in the day that we have today as well, that he offers repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and, and says to us as the church that we should go out and compel them to come in that his house may be full. That's on us. We have that responsibility. God, listen to, God's warning was rejected. Listen to what they said. And they said, verse 12, that's hopeless. So we will walk According to our own plans, we will every one obey the dictates of his evil heart. How is that for spiritual stupidity? Sorry, Mom and Dad, if I'm not supposed to say that. That's incredible. Thus says the Lord, verse 13. "'Ask now among the Gentiles who'd heard such things. "'The Virgin of Israel has done a very horrible thing. "'Will a man leave the snow water of Lebanon, "'which comes from the rock of the fields, "'with the cold-flowing waters, "'be forsaken for strange waters?' Because my people have forgotten me. They've burned incense to worthless idols. They've caused themselves to stumble in their way from the ancient paths to walk in pathways and not, and not highways to make their land desolate and a perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. And then they said, Let's get the prophet. Let's kill him. Get Jerry. Get Jeremiah. Get the one who's delivering the word of the Lord. Then they said, come, let us devise plans against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come, let us attack him with the tongue. Let us not give heed to any of his words. Let's eliminate him, and then we don't have to listen to this holy God. But we know better, and they knew better. They had just fooled themselves into thinking if we eliminate the the vocal word, then we're going to be okay. And they probably were for a day or a week. The potter and the clay, God making vessels according to his good pleasure. And yet, the people of Judah responding like the marred clay resisting God in accordance with their own heart. It's a God thing. Just like the Pharaoh of Egypt during the time of the Exodus, led by Moses, Pharaoh did according to his own will, and it corresponded perfectly with God's purposes. Exodus 9, God speaking to Pharaoh, I believe it's the seventh plague, but indeed for this purpose, God speaking to Pharaoh, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth, and yet you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. And God is saying to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you are a common vessel. I'm using you for my purpose. This is what he wants us to be. Why in the world would we choose to be something that's common? I better be careful. I'm going to drop that thing and break it. Proverbs 16 says, The Lord has made all for himself, yes, even the wicked, for the day of doom. It's difficult for us. It is, listen, it is difficult and challenging for us in light of God so loved the world. It is difficult for us to comprehend that there are also vessels of wrath. But God is not just a better Jerry. And even in the midst of the vessels of wrath, he offers and calls to repentance. And yet, Ezekiel has a word to say about that, and I'll read that in a bit. Romans 9 uses Jeremiah's illustration. Romans chapter 9, verse 14. It's difficult. It seems inconsistent. And so Paul begged that question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? This God who declares himself to be holy and just and all-powerful and pure and right and sinless, is there unrighteousness with him because he did Genesis 7? Because he said to Moses, Moses, get out of the way, and I'm going to annihilate them, and I'll make a nation of you. Or because of the future day of the Lord, is is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it's not with of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. That's, John says it this way. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. It's critical that we're born of God. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. For the scripture says back in Romans nine seventeen. To the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raise you up that I'm show that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore He has mercy on whom He wills, He will and whom He wills He hardens. You will say to me then, Why does He still find fault? Who has resisted His will? So if God does that, how is it that He can blame me for eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and having sinned? How can he blame? I can't resist him. He's all powerful, almighty God. Paul begged that question, but this is what the answer is. But indeed, oh man, listen to this. This puts us in our place. Who are you to reply against God? Who do you think you are? You're not even at the table. Who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me this like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Let's grant to God his godness and quit thinking that he's just a better version of Jerry and what I think he's like. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He had endured patiently a thousand seven hundred years in the antediluvian days, and that He might make that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us uh, whom He called, not on the Jews only, but of the Jew, but of the Gentiles also. And so we've got Genesis and and Him saying that God did what he did and we've got Jeremiah and him saying that God did what he did and we have Paul saying that in Romans and then he adds Hosea as he says also in Hosea I will call them my people who are not my people her beloved who is not beloved it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them you are not my people they shall be called sons of the living God Isaiah also so he adds Isaiah's opinion spirit-filled into the picture as well Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the see there's just millions of them the remnant the remaining a very small portion will be saved for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make short work upon the earth as Isaiah said before unless listen to this unless put your name here unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah Unless God had extended Jerry and you mercy, we would have been just like Sodom. We'd have been just like Gomorrah. We'd have been just like the antediluvian people that were in Noah's days as well, like, like the Pharaoh. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who didn't pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has, obtained to the law, has not attained to the law of righteousness because they didn't seek it by faith. But as it were, the works of the law. They stumbled at the stumbling stone. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and that's Jesus. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Apart from God finding favor with Noah, he would have drowned also. Apart from God finding favor and granting you grace and us responding to it, we also would walk absolutely condemned, just, just like they were. Where would we be? Isaiah tells us, like Sodom and like Gomorrah. And God is the potter, and he gets to choose which one he makes, whether it's an exquisite vessel or whether it's for common use. Our responsibility. And then he extends repentance, a call to repentance to all who are condemned and judged. And, and, And we have that responsibility. We can be so fickle. Elijah Elijah called, he called fire down from heaven. And the next day he's running from Jezebel. We can be so fickle. And that's in Romans chapter 11. And so we, we just have to recognize, God, you are who you are. And who am I to tell you you can or you can't do your Genesis 7 activity? Or you can or you can't say, Moses, get out of the way. I'm going I'm to wipe all of them out. Or who, are, who am I to say that, God, the day of the Lord is unjust because I think you are God so loved the world. And he is. But he's bigger than that. And we might not understand all of it. But it helps us have a holy fear of the Lord. And as we do, I think we worship him better. We're better motivated to serve him as well. Isaiah 45 said this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthly pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, why are you making me this way? Your work has no handles. Who is he, the potter, who is the pot to say, why didn't you give me handles? Why'd you make my nose this way? Why'd you let me be born in this family? Why am I from this country? The reality is, he's the potter and we're the clay. And we shouldn't contend with our maker. When I know my heavenly father, nope, I want to go back. Ezekiel says this, say to them, he's on the wall, Ezekiel 33, say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure zero pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turns from his evil way. And then he calls out, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? And Moa, Mo, Mo, Noah, Noah built that ark and preached the gospel and the communication of righteousness was there. And Moses did the same and Jesus has done the same and it rests upon us to do the same as well. Turn, turn from your wicked ways. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even though they were wicked, he doesn't, he doesn't smile upon that. He has no pleasure there. Asking the question, did everyone who died in the flood experience go on to experience eternal judgment? And when, when properly asked, is not the clay saying to the potter, what are you doing or why have you done this or, or, or are you right to do this? If it's asked with a desire to know God and understand him and who he has declared himself to be, it's a fine question if that's our motive. But we have to be so very careful that we don't step into pretending to judge God and saying, God, why didn't you put handles on this pot? And why did you do this that particular way? Genesis 6 is a truth-filled account of the antediluvian age pre-flood. But that was a long time ago. We read it. We believe it. It arrests our attention. But I didn't know any of them. But of the 150 or 200 people that I've buried... I know some names. And not everybody walked with the Lord. And that can be troublesome. And so that brings it all the way up to modern day of how do I view this horribleness of death and the reality that God is all-powerful and he allows it to happen. I know my Heavenly Father, and I think this is the best way. I know my Heavenly Father because I've disciplined myself spiritually, and we're going to talk about what that means very quickly. I can trust Him to do whatever is right, period. I don't have to have a handle to hold on to. I don't have to have a day that somebody prayed a prayer because maybe they did maybe they didn't. I don't have to have some sort of a, an indicator that they had some faith relationship because the reality is there isn't any comfort there. There isn't any hope when it's when it's when it's when it's hit head on with the truth. There isn't we, we don't know. But I know my heavenly father and I know that he always only does what's right. So how can I know my heavenly father to that degree that when crisis hits and crisis hits here and we I could go around the room and let you know some crises that are going on. You know, they the ones that are going on or the or that will be. How can I know him so well? And he says this, and I don't mean to make it very easy, but he says this, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And I draw near to him by reading his words, seeking to understand who he is, not who I'm telling him he needs to be. I read his words, seeking to understand who he is. I genuinely talk with him. If you talk with other people, Because you know them, do you talk with God? So I I read his word, I talk with God, I repent when I need to repent, I draw near to God, and he will draw near to me as well. Noah did that, and Moses did that, and Isaiah did that, and you can do that as well. What happened in Genesis 7, we don't get clear understanding. But what we know is God is absolutely holy. Amen. And there was absolute evil and wickedness. And the only reason Noah got in that ark, because he found favor with God. Your translation might say grace. And that's the only reason you, are, you and I are in as well. It isn't because we come to Lone Jack Baptist Church or because I participate in the Lord's Supper or because I do XXX. It's because of the goodness and the grace of God. We worship And serve an awesome. I don't like the word horrible. That's not good. Figure out a word and let me know what it is. We serve a God that is otherly, not just a better version of me. Amen? Father, we bow before you humbly, not even understanding. And yet you've declared things in your word that we can wrap our mind around, at least to some degree. Give us understanding. Help us recognize that you are the potter. When you call us to repentance and faith, may we respond with repentance and faith. I pray that for every single person within hearing distance. I pray that in Jesus' name.